0: Good morning, Sylvania. Good morning. I am going to gently, I've been told very gently, move this. Otherwise, we are going to have a charismatic moment somewhere in the sermon, and I'll start speaking in tongues, which will be to both of our surprise. So I think we're good. Well, uh, it is a privilege to be here. As you know, my name is Rick Whitmer, and on behalf of my whole family, I want to thank you so much. For your hospitality and kindness to us, we've gotten to spend this weekend with several of you, and it has been a delight. Um, We feel so well-treated, so well-received, and uh, we are grateful. I'm looking forward to meeting the rest of you, and I want to ask forgiveness for anybody from whom I need to ask your name more than a couple of times. I'm trying, but I have a leaky brain. But, that being said, we've looked forward to this weekend as long as we've known that this weekend was going to happen, and, uh, and as we've come, uh, I'm very excited to be able to serve you in the word this morning. I'm excited about what God is doing in Sylvania Church. I'm excited about what God is doing with our family. And I also want to acknowledge the depth of pain that I know you all have been through. And as I've been trying to make sense of what God's doing, I want you to know how I think of, of this. I do not in any way see Sylvania just moving on. I see Sylvania leaning on Christ and building on the faithful ministry of the word that he has granted to you these many years. God is continuing to build his church. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and that is certainly true. And so we honor where Sylvania has been, even as we anticipate where Sylvania is going, and all of it with God's grace from top to bottom. And to that end, it's my privilege to preach to you this morning and in the next Lord's Day, and in considering my Bible texts, I knew I wanted to spend some time with you in Psalm 145, and let me tell you why. The past year has been a year of God's providential work in my family's life, and as his providence so often does, it has turned out quite differently than I anticipated, and he thoroughly disregarded my prayers regarding timing. And as often is the case with God's good providence, there are joys and there are trials. There's highs and there are lows. And at one point in the late summer, there was a, uh, a time of trial, and I found myself with vision problems. My glasses prescription was doing just fine. These are rather new glasses. But my soul's gaze was not doing fine. I was looking at myself, even as I was spending time in the Word and in prayer, as I always do. But one morning, I was singing Psalm 145. And even though it has been my favorite psalm um, for for years now, uh, which is funny because I often forget that it's there until I get to it the next time, that morning the Holy Spirit highlighted the glory of God, the vision of God that we get in Psalm 145 in such a way as to invite me to linger there and spend the next several weeks just training my vision on God, not on my circumstances. And another reason I wanted to preach this psalm to you in particular is because later that same day, after the Lord reoriented my vision, I got a phone call from a man named Josh Jared, inviting me to interview with the search team, which at that point, I wasn't sure whether they'd forgotten about me or not. So (laughs) that was a very welcome phone call. And now, thanks to Josh, I am on Marco Polo. So now... For those of you keeping time, all of that is personal introduction. It does not yet count as my sermon time, which begins now. So if you would take your copy of the word of God and open to Psalm 145, we will be spending the rest of our time there together. And if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. And I'm not sure if this is your custom or not, but I'm, I'm used to at the end of the reading of the word saying the word of the Lord to which you all would say, thanks be to God. And so if you would be so kind as to indulge me in that, I will, um, I will say that at the end of our reading. So these are the words of God. Psalm 145. A praise of David. I will extol you, my God, O King, And I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness." They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power, to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, all of the psalms are inerrant, inspired, infallible, essential, wonderful. They have nourished the church as long as they've been around. And some of the psalms suggest that they have a special place in the hearts of God's people. So, for example, the translators of the King James Version translate the heading of this psalm, David's Psalm of Praise. And catching on to that, the great Puritan commentator Matthew Henry remarks that the psalm this particular psalm held a unique place in David's heart and was often upon his lips. There's a reason uh, that Psalm 145, particularly as we see God's providence to all his creation, became a psalm that would at least in part be recited at every Jewish noonday meal, every day. It is a special psalm. No matter which way you slice it, Psalm 145 is an amazing psalm. And it paints a picture of an amazing God. And David paints that picture for us because he wants us to join David in worship of the God who truly is amazing. And if I had to take Psalm 145 and distill it down into one main idea, this would be it. That the Lord is the amazing King who is worthy of our praise today and forever. And the Lord is the amazing King who is worthy of our praise today and forever. And now I need to make a disclaimer, as someone who loves language, we, I think we can all agree, I hope, that, that words like amazing are way overused, right? And I mean, think about the way that we use it. You'll have somebody telling you that they are amazed all the time or that they love everything. And so you have someone in one breath saying, I had this amazing burger, right? I had this amazing burger. I love what a burger. which I now know is a thing okay? It was our first Texas meal. And then in the next minute, they'll tell you how much they love Jesus, and that Amazing Grace is their favorite hymn. And you're just like, okay, let me do the math on this so I have it straight. You love Whataburger, and you love Jesus, right? Grace is amazing, and so is that restaurant. So I think if I'm getting the hierarchy of affections uh, straight, Jesus and Whataburger are up there, right? And i In-N-Out Burger is a different story, okay? And I will be the first to tell you that is amazing. So I am not faulting anybody, okay? I am as guilty as the next guy, all right? I'm just calling it for what it is. And In-N-Out Burger notwithstanding, we do need to realize that grace is truly amazing, God is truly amazing. And so when we're looking for English words and we're pushing the boundaries of the language to describe how great something is, God is unmatched. God is unmatched in his glory. And that's the theme of Psalm 145. And that's the theme of Psalm 145. Now, having established that the word amazing is way overused, I have naturally put it in every one of the headings in my sermon. But that's okay, because I owned it. So following the contours of the text, what we're going to see today is first an amazing God in verses 1 through 7, and then amazing grace in verses 8 through 9, an amazing kingdom in verses 10 through 13, an amazing providence in verses 14 through 16, and finally an amazing Christ in verses 17 through 21. And so let's begin with the first seven verses where David revels in the greatness of our amazing God. Now sometimes it's overwhelming to think of who God is, isn't it? Now I know that when I sit down to worship the Lord, I'm oftentimes at a loss to know where to even begin. There, how do you even begin to sing or, or pray in a way that would match the worthiness of the God that we approach? We see Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6 as he falls down because the angels are around God's throne crying out, holy, 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 and it's all we can do to say with Isaiah, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. How do we begin with a God like that? His glory is vast. His eternity hurts my brain. I can't figure it out. His love is matchless. His presence is boundless. You can literally pick up with any perfection of God, any any one of his attributes, and you can start there and worship well. In Psalm 145, David's theme is the greatness of God, and the way that he writes the psalm reflects that theme particularly. Now, this doesn't get reflected in our English translations, but this is the last of the Hebrew acrostic psalms, which means that every verse that David writes begins with one letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, and goes all the way through to Tav, Tav. For some reason or other, he leaves out the letter nun, which is why perhaps in some of your translations, you'll see verse 13 has a section in the back half with brackets or perhaps a footnote. That's because the standard Hebrew text doesn't have that part of verse 13. It was included to, to give a verse that begins with the letter nun, but whether or not it was original, what it says is true enough. And so looking at the multifaceted greatness of God, working all the way through from one end of the alphabet to the other, we have the Alpha and Omega who is worthy of our worship. God is that amazing. He is that great. And first, David extols God's greatness in the first three verses. This is the first aspect of God's greatness that we see. And he uses three synonyms, the words bless, extol, and praise. And each of these words basically says the same thing, that David is resolved to worship Yahweh, the covenant Lord of Israel. This is David's resolve. And we see it as he says, I worship you, my God, O King. Now we often read right past that because we're used to it. It's exactly the kind of thing we expect David to say. But we need to pause for a moment and think about how amazing, (laughs) there it is again, how amazing it is that David is saying that. Because who is David? Who is David? He is the king of Israel. He's the head of the one nation divinely chosen as the apple of God's eye. And if you ask any Jewish kid after about 1000 BC, who's the greatest king in Israel, you're probably going to get the answer, David. Perhaps Solomon, but at least David didn't plunge the kingdom into idolatry. Now, what does the king of Israel call God? He says, My God, O king. The Lord is the king of Israel. He is the one that the human monarch is determined to worship. And that preaches loudly to everyone that not to any man, you know, in Psalm 115, it says, Not to us, but to your name, O Lord, give glory. And that's what David begins with. God is the Lord who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And if we have any sense as Bible readers, we are going to follow David's cues there and determine that David's resolve will be ours. David's resolve will be ours. And we won't just wait until glory to do it. And based on the way that you sing as a church, you're not waiting till glory to do it. You're doing what David does in verse 2. He says, I will bless your name every day every day. And why? Why must we resolve ourselves to worship the Lord day by day? Well, certainly because of who he is, right? God is at the center of this psalm. It's about him. He's worthy because of who he is. Yes, amen, and period. And in one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, we see the truth that God's greatness is unsearchable. This is verse three. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. We will never be able to plumb the depths of who God is. His greatness is the boundless ocean that we've only explored a tiny fraction of. What we know and love of God is true, it's good, it's beautiful, and it's only such a small part of his glory, majesty, and person. But his amazing greatness is unsearchable. So we, my friends, if anybody has ever been tempted to think, I think I might get bored for eternity. Heaven sounds a little bit like there might be no Whataburger. Like, just know this, you will be well occupied. His greatness is unsearchable. But he's also worthy of our praise because of his works. Because of his works, which is what David focuses on in verses 4 through 7. One generation shall, de- shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. What God has done throughout history displays his power and glory and greatness in remarkable ways, in remarkable ways. I've heard Shane say at least a couple of times in his series on Acts that every miracle preaches a sermon, and we have to listen to what it says. Well, friends, all of God's acts do the same. And so David focuses in on the wondrous works of God in Psalm 145, which hearken back to everything that's come before that. And so we can imagine what David must be thinking about when he says that one generation shall declare your works to another. What is he saying? What's he thinking of? Well, certainly he's thinking of creation, that burst of miraculous activity in those first six days of history at Genesis 1. I'm sure he's thinking of the covenant that God made with Abraham, who was too old to have a son, a covenant that establishes the nation of Israel. Of course, he's thinking of the exodus and the miraculous activity that God did to bring his people out of bondage in Egypt and into the promised land. That's a major theme that continues to come up through the Psalms. The giving of the law at Sinai, God's presence come down on a mountain, the covenant given to Israel that made them a special chosen people. But what of God's work in David's life? what about God? I'm sure that David's thinking of the time that he was a shepherd boy in a field brought from that field to becoming the shepherd of God's people, Israel. And then, as if that weren't enough, God gives this covenant to David that promises that one of his descendants will sit upon his throne forever. And we know who that is. So Psalm 145 already hearkens back to what God has done and looks forward to what God will do. But I want you to notice something instructive for us in verse 4. One generation shall praise your works to another. Friends, if we want to worship the Lord as he is worthy, we need to worship and be committed to worshiping generationally. Generationally. This has always been the heart of faithful Christianity, even being inscribed at the heart of the Old Covenant. In that passage in Deuteronomy 6, that, that Jews even today, some Jews today will still recite twice a day. We see this in what's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, at the center of your family rhythm is God. And not just for your family, but for your family's family. And on down through the generations. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Friends, this is what Christians do. Whatever else it looks like to be a Christian... It looks like Christ being at the center of our family life, one generation to the next. When God's people, young and old, sing together in corporate worship, God is magnified. When fathers and mothers and grandparents and grandchildren and children all sit together at home and worship in family worship, Christ is lifted up. When toddlers are wrangled by parents who are trying to get them not to squawk just so much, and yet they're here teaching those children what it means to worship the Lord, God smiles. So don't worry about the grumpy frown down the row, okay? God smiles because these are his children. Friends, God is glorified in all of these things, and what we do here this morning is declaring to one another the mighty acts of God. And when we do that, we declare the amazing grace of God, which we see in verses 8 through 9. Verses 8 through 9, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. Friends, there are two aspects of God's amazing grace that we see here in these verses. The first of which is God's special grace. God's special grace in verse 8. God's special grace is his covenant-keeping grace to his people whom he eternally loves and chooses and saves through Christ. It's a grace that he gives only to those who are redeemed by Christ. It's the grace declared to Moses when God reveals his name on the mountain that day. This is exactly what David is looking back to When he's writing Psalm 145, it's the revelation of God's name after Moses threw down and broke the first tablets that God gave, and he goes up to get new tablets so that the people can have a copy of the law to put in the ark. He asks God, show me your glory, and God says, I'm going to pass by, but you're going to see my back, you can't see my face and live. And it says that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, merciful, And gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, friends, look at the contrast there. God promises love and patience, goodness and truth, Grace to a thousand generations and then for those who are committed to iniquity, he only goes three or four generations out. So even in his judgment, do we not see the gracious heart of God? Do we not see his character? And I don't know who here needs to hear this, but friends, if your vision of God the Father is one of a father who's standing ready to just pounce on you every time you step out of line, every time you once again do that sin that you've been struggling with, Remember, when God told us who he is, he used the words merciful, gracious, long-suffering. And this has been well pointed out by many throughout church history, including John Owen. What more could the Father do to convince you that he loves you, like the smile kind of love, than that he gave his only son? He did that, right? He did that. This is God declaring his character, which is a saving character. And David's looking at that. The first recorded declaration of the gospel was in Eden, when right after Adam and Eve fell, God promises that one of the woman's seed would crush the head of the serpent. And so we see the anticipation and promise of Christ from the very earliest pages of scripture. And that is the gospel that is progressively revealed throughout scripture and that David is proclaiming once again as he looks back to God's declaration of it again on that mountain. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. And therefore we need Jesus. So hang out with me here for just a moment. What's the season in which we find ourselves? It's Advent, right? It's Advent, a season of anticipation, each week building up to the coming of Christ through a series of themes, beginning with hope last week. And now, this week, continuing with peace, next week with joy. And the advent of Christ is the culmination of the hopes of all God's people from the beginning of time. And so everything that happens under the old covenant calls for, cries out for, Jesus to come that we may have peace. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The grace and compassion and patience and mercy of God in Psalm 145 cry out for advent because without advent there is no peace. And thanks be to God, we've celebrated many Advents. What do we know about ourselves? Well, while each of us is created in the image of God, we know that we are also children of Adam. And because of Adam, our federal head, because he fell in sin, each of us are guilty sinners, both by nature when we're born and by choice as soon as we have the capacity. We're each subject to the just wrath of God and unable to save ourselves, which, as they say, is quite a pickle. We're each subject to God's judgment. And our most seemingly righteous works, the prophet says, are but filthy rags in the sight of the Holy One. And so when God says that his name includes things like grace and mercy, we say, oh, good. Whew. I think of what gif I would use if I was talking to a friend on text about that but God is holy and just and good. And so here's the beauty of the gospel. He cannot overlook sin. He must judge it, right? And he does that. He has to do that because he's exactly the kind of God we want. Can you imagine the tyranny of an unholy God? Can you imagine the bad news of a God who rules over all things and ignores evil? That's called anarchy. But we don't have a God like that. We have a God who's just, and that good news about God becomes bad news for us who know that we are worthy of condemnation. And because our sin has plunged us into the chaos and brokenness and sorrow of condemnation, so how could God possibly be merciful and gracious to sinners like us? Advent. The advent of the Christ child, the second Adam, born to save us from our sins by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. That's what's so good about Christmas. That's what Linus told Charlie Brown. Okay. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's my text for next week, but yes and amen to it today. And in verse 9, we see a second aspect of grace, which theologians call God's common grace. So if we see his special his special grace, in verse 8, to his people, we move over to his common grace to all the world, in verse 9, as he is extending his tender mercies over all his works. So if he's gracious and merciful to his redeemed people in a saving way, then he's good to all and shows his tender mercies to all creation in a common way, in a common way. So common grace, if I was going to define it for you, common grace is any blessing that God gives to anybody short of salvation, okay? It's the rain that falls on the righteous and the wicked, which is the reason Jesus tells us, because your father is like that, therefore love your enemies, because that's how your father treats his enemies. He gives them rain. He grows crops. He grows crops for Christian farmers, Hindu farmers, and atheist farmers, okay? Like, that's common grace, it's not that we deserve it, it's that he's blessing us with it. And we know that David has this common grace in mind in verse 9 because the recipients of this goodness are everybody. And we know that not everybody is saved. Okay, the Scripture's so clear about that. So he isn't talking about, in verse 9 about forgiveness. God has compassion on his enemies and feeds them, but that doesn't mean they're brought into the covenant relationship with him through Christ. It just means that he's a gracious God. But not all grace brings with it saving grace, okay? It's God's common grace. And while his enemies deserve immediate judgment, as each of us do by nature, he nevertheless loads this world with blessings from the top to the bottom. He's that good. And David keeps racking up reasons. I mean, we could go, okay, that's enough. I think we're good. That will get us through the week, right? In our private worship, in our family worship. But David keeps going. Okay? So God is great, his works are amazing, especially his works of redemption, the incarnation, the perfect obedience of Jesus on our behalf, his atoning death in our place, his glorious resurrection and ascension, and his reign and enthronement at the right hand of the Father as the King of kings and Lord of lords. You're like, that's amazing. And you're like, yes. Yes, it is. But in verses 10 through 13, David proclaims God's amazing kingdom. On top of that, his amazing kingdom. And so if Yahweh is the divine king and Christ is enthroned as king of kings and lord of lords, then what is his kingdom like? What is his kingdom like? And in verses 10 through 12, he tells us that it is a glorious kingdom. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Not all kingdoms are created equal, right? We're very familiar with the concept of kingdoms and nations and territories. So our world has known countless empires through the years, many which have come and gone, many of which are still here today. Some of which are extremely weighty, like the Roman Empire. Others, which bear the scorn and shame of gross human rights violations, economic oppression, and religious persecution, like the hermit kingdom of North Korea. Not all kingdoms are created equal. And none of them are what everybody wants. None of them are what we need. There's one kingdom that is truly glorious, that is defined by truth goodness, and beauty, justice, and righteousness, and that is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God anticipated under the old covenant in the kingdom of Israel, declared by Christ as having come in the new covenant, and looked forward to when Jesus returns to consummate the ages. Friends, we have this kingdom ruled by Yahweh, and in the old covenant, Israel was under God's rule. They had God's laws They were God's special people, okay? And yet, what did they do with that? They squandered the wealth of what God had given to them. They squandered the blessing of being God's chosen people, so much so that in this climactic vision of God's glory leaving the temple in Ezekiel 10, Ezekiel has shown how the leaders of Israel are in God's temple worshiping idols, and God says, I'm out, I'm out. And from Ezekiel 10 on, even when Israel comes back from exile and the temple is rebuilt, there is not a record of God's presence coming back into the temple. But there is a record of a day when the Son of God came from heaven who declared himself to be the presence of God, God with us, God with us. And he tabernacled among us, the apostle says, brought his kingdom and showed us his glory and made in himself a new and holy temple, the church. You are that temple. God's presence is here, God with us. And when Christ came, he brought the age to come into the now. And so if you, like me, finish your day reading Not the Bee or whatever, and you're just like, there's a lot of bad news going on and you're tempted to think things are things are awful and and they they are remember this god is with us the age to come believe it or not but i would encourage you to believe it has come to the now it is not yet what it will be not by any stretch of the imagination and yet it is real it is real. We are the people of the covenant. Jesus began, he inaugurated the kingdom of God in the new covenant, and we are the people of that covenant. This is good news. And ever since that time that Jesus came, ever since that time that the new covenant was inaugurated in his blood, we have been a people living under two ages. And so we already experience every spiritual blessing in Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, which is staggering. I haven't yet figured that out. If you figure out how to access all those blessings in like an effective daily way that helps me get over my besetting sins, please talk to me afterwards. Because friends, that is good news. This is the reality of what Christ has done. We experience every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And yet, the fullness of that age is not yet here until Christ returns and he finally banishes sin and death and the devil forever. And that day is coming. That day is coming. And so we, what are we to do as the redeemed citizens of that kingdom now? Well, David tells us, he tells us in Psalm 145, he says in these verses that it's the saints who bless the Lord and speak of the glory of his kingdom and declare his mighty acts. Friends, that's called worship. That's called worship. And when we declare it to other people, that's called evangelism. And so, friends, worship and evangelism. If you ever wonder, what am I supposed to do today? I've kind of lost, I feel like I'm adrift. I've lost my sense of purpose. Why am I here? My career test didn't tell me. Well, friends, go to Psalm 145. You're here for worship, and you're here for witness. We speak of the glory of the kingdom that we are a part of, God's kingdom. We speak upward to God in worship, and we speak outward to each other in worship as we declare God's mighty acts, and outward to our neighbors and friends and relatives and in the missions that we do in evangelism. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing something, I want to know it's worthwhile. Right? There's nothing worse than starting a task that you know is just meaningless. You don't know whether it's going to work out or not. And the good news on that front is in verse 13. What kind of kingdom are we making known to the world? Well, not just a glorious kingdom, but an eternal kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, David says. It will last forever. And it's not just a future kingdom, it's a present kingdom. And so God's rule... Under the Old Covenant, as we see, had so much opposition to it, so much rebellion, so much sin, so much idolatry. But listen, even as Israel was in exile to Babylon, the prophet Daniel had a vision, and we're told what happens to the kingdoms of the world when Christ comes with his kingdom. It's that great vision of the statue uh, in Daniel 2, and we see Babylon as the head of gold, we see Persia as the chest of silver. We see Greece as the thighs of bronze and then Rome as the legs of iron and then the iron and clay feet. And then in Daniel 2.44, it says that in the days of these kings, okay, that's the intertestamental period, the time between the, the testaments. In the days of these kings, okay, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to another people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And friends, the, the rock that comes and crushes those kingdoms, the rock is Christ. The rock is Christ. So Advent is a time of anticipation and a time of remembering, right? We anticipate the coming of Christ. God become flesh for our salvation, right? Leading up to Christmas. But Advent also remembers when Christ came in time and brought with him a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, which has been growing And then, it's also a time of anticipation that one day that kingdom will come in its fullness when Jesus completes the work he began and has been doing ever since. We have a very active king. There's no lame duck kingship with Jesus. Sylvania Church, we serve a king whose rule and reign will never fail or fade. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found and joy to the world your labor is not in vain. So we have an amazing God of amazing grace with an amazing kingdom. And then turning God's greatness into another light for us to marvel even more, David shows us in verses 14 through 16 God's amazing providence. God's amazing providence. So we see this rhythm in Psalm 145 of his greatness and works shown to his redeemed people who praise him. And then we go over to the realm of the whole world as God's kindness is shown to all. And then we move back over to the realm of his special grace as his saints worship him for his kingdom glory. And now we're back over here as focusing on the whole world, we see God providing what every creature needs to live, okay? Even the most hardened atheist can't take a bite or breathe a breath without the generous hand of God's providence. That's what it says. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who fall, raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all, and that means all, look expectantly to you and you give them their food in due season. Friends, God sustains the life of every living thing. How do we know? Because we're living, right? If he didn't sustain us, we wouldn't be here. If he didn't provide food, we would waste away. Every living thing, whether it's using that breath to praise God or to curse him, is being provided for by God. And verse 15 says that the Lord gives food in due season, which means that the Lord gives food at precisely the right time, sustaining what each of his creatures needs to live as long as he's ordained to give them life. Now, of course, this echoes what Christ taught us to pray, doesn't it? Give us this day our daily bread. But friends, I would suggest this goes way beyond that. I think there's also a special layer here to this. Because what is our greatest need? Is it not salvation? We can, be, we can have full bellies every day of our lives and live to be 100 and go straight to hell. But we need salvation more than food. And what did our Father who provides our food do to provide our salvation? And when did he do it? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Friends, when the fullness of time had come, in other words, in due season, God gave the son who said that the bread of heaven, the bread of God, has come, our true food has come down from heaven and gives life to the world. Our God provides what we need physically and spiritually. So the the, the God of Psalm 145 is a generous God. He's a generous God. And friends, this is the theology underneath the Christmas presents we're going to give out in a couple weeks, right? So as you sit around your tree giving presents, very material gifts to one another, remember this. You are imaging your very generous and provisional God who has given his very material son, if he wasn't a material son of God, if he wasn't one of us, we would have no salvation. So praise him as you give his gifts. And that leads us here to the end, to these final verses in our psalm where we see an amazing Christ. Every glory of God that we see in Psalm 145 comes to us through Christ And all of that comes to a climax in these final verses as David focuses once again on the special grace of God to his people. And so look at verse 17 as we see Christ's character. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. Two of God's perfections are exalted here, his righteousness and his grace. In all God's works he is righteous, in all God's works he is gracious, I mean, we've already considered the gospel, right? That the righteous and holy God shows mercy and grace to sinners like us through Christ, which is entirely keeping with his character that he revealed to his people, as we saw. But I think we need to think about the implications of this truth. And I'm preaching to myself, okay? If the Lord is righteous in all his works, okay, if he's righteous in all his works, does that mean that even the hardest times that we endure on this this planet— are under the providential hand of a righteous God. And scripture's resounding answer is yes. And friends, it's not a trite yes. It's not a just let go and let God yes. It's not a kind of yes that you can fit on a bumper sticker. Okay? That's to mishandle the providence of God. God's providence has too often been used as a, as, as a means of saying something trite when you don't know what else to say and it ends up doing harm. No, but we see a very weighty yes to that answer. When Job suffered the most profound loss, he clung to this truth and blessed the Lord, at least at first. And the very last verse of chapter 1 says that in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. And if we cling to the truth of the God we see in Psalm 145, it will strengthen and be an anchor for our souls in the darkest of days. And I know you know what that means. It doesn't make it easy. But with his help, we'll be able to say with the psalmist in true worship, you are good, and you do good. We cling to that category, and it's an important one in theology, of mystery. We don't know what God's up to all the time. He just doesn't tell us. But we know that whatever he's up to, he is always good. And there's my Baptist coming out. God is good all the time. All the time? And in verses 18 and 19, we see the salvation given in Jesus Christ. At this time of year, we especially remember the name of Christ prophesied by Isaiah and given in Matthew 1, Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Friends, that's why Christmas happened. It's why we celebrate every year the Lord is near, Emmanuel, God with us. There's only one condition given for us to experience the fullness of that very much with us-ness of God. <laughs> what does that sentence mean? The only condition for, our, for us to know the nearness of his blessing is that we call upon him in truth. In other words, friends, repent and believe in the gospel. When we do that, when we come with nothing in our hands, clinging only to Christ, we call on him in truth, the Christ not of our own making, but the Christ of scripture, all that he is to us. He says he is near and he is near to save. He is near to save. And not only does he save, he keeps saving. Friends, verse 20, it says that he preserves his people. Look at the first half of verse 20. The Lord preserves all who love him. And if I'm honest, friends, that's the reason I get up in the morning. If it was up to me to preserve myself, I'd been apostatized long ago. But God is faithful to the covenant he made. He he made with Jesus. He sent his son into the world to redeem a people, not just a general people, a specific people. And if you haven't read the end of the story, spoiler alert, the full company of those people are going to be there. Every single one. Every single one. We have a preserving God. And so I would say that if you're keeping your distance from Jesus this morning because of your struggle with sin, run to Jesus. Don't keep your distance any longer. Call upon him in truth, and he promises to save. He promises to draw you near. He promises to forgive. Remember the character of your father. He is gracious and merciful. But for those who refuse the salvation he offers, there's a serious warning in the second half of verse 20. It says, But all the wicked he will destroy. All the wicked he will destroy. This is the only contrast in this entire psalm. Every verse of this psalm, the form of Hebrew poetry, the parallelism, as you work through it, it's building on itself. You're getting one idea through the whole thing. This is good stuff. And then you get to the second half of verse 20, and there's this warning, don't reject the God who's here. Believe. He destroys the wicked because He is a just and holy God. So don't put off repentance or stay away from Jesus. If you are, why? I can't think of any reason why. Because today, Jesus says, is the day of salvation, and I promise you will never keep Christmas better than by coming to the Christ who came for you that is how we keep Christmas. And we keep it all the year. That wasn't even what Scrooge was talking about. (laughs) And that brings us back to where David began to praise. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, verse 21, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. So David began with a personal resolve to praise, and he ends by calling us all to join him. He calls us all to join him, Why? Because we have an amazing God of amazing grace with an amazing kingdom who is abundant in amazing providence, and he is an amazing Savior worthy of praise. And so it's clear, how should we respond to Psalm 145? In worship. In worship. So let's examine our hearts this Advent season and reflect on the glories of our amazing God who came to us in Christ and praise his name today and forever proclaiming his kingdom and his gospel to one another and to those who don't yet know him. And this will be the grace of God in Sylvania Church, and this will be her glory. Let's pray. O God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are humbled and amazed in the most profound way when we come to you as we see you here for us in this psalm. These are remarkable words. We praise you for your kindness, your mercy, your love. We praise you that, Jesus, you came at the fullness of time that we might have life. We praise you, Lord God, for your eternal purpose and plan accomplished in Jesus, being accomplished as your spirit draws all of your people through him to yourself. We praise you for the good work that you are doing specifically here at Sylvania Church, for the binding of this fellowship together in the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace that this church might worship in this way that we see in this psalm and might be for the glory of Christ, not only among the nations, but especially here in Tyler, Texas. Your name be praised and please through this word strengthen us that we might double down on our efforts, not efforts of our own doing, but laboring with all the power that you mightily work within us for the praise of your glorious grace through Jesus Christ, who reigns together with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Let's stand in worship.